Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Calvary. What we should do tonight is um, open up the Word of God and find out what is making news in heaven. So let's go to Psalm 51. <laughs> Psalm 51, we'll start in, in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Lord, tonight, that is our prayer, that we'd have a, a new heart, that we would be washed and cleansed, God, from anything ungodly, and that you, Lord, would be exalted by what we say, what we do, and what we dwell upon in our thought life. Let us give ourselves wholly to these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Well, the title of our teaching tonight is The Beauty of Brokenness. We see that our text is in Psalm 51. There was a loud, jarring crash on the floor of a department store one day. Mother and daughter had been browsing around the shelves of China. The little girl couldn't help but ignore the command of her mother not to touch anything. The crystal elephant was just too tempting. She also didn't pay attention to the $400 price sticker on that figurine. Nor did she notice the sign on the shelf that the clerk was quick to point out that said, if you break it, You've bought it. What good was that china animal now laying shattered all over the floor? It was worthless. That's how it is in this world. That which is broken is without value. When a person is without money, we call them broke. When you lose control of your emotions, we say they broke down and cried. Deeply troubled people, we say they've had a, a nervous breakdown. When a romance goes south, we say they've broken our heart. All these are conditions that we generally try to avoid. But carefully note this about God's kingdom. Because I'm coming to understand that this might be one of the largest contrasts between the will of man and the will of God. The world despises broken people. But God takes pleasure in using broken things. In fact, he demands you be broken before he can ever begin to use you. Jesus said, if you fall on this rock, you'll be broken. But if you don't, you'll be destroyed. That refers to conversion. So unless you throw yourself at the foot of the cross, someday you'll be condemned for your sins. Now that's the principle behind salvation, and we have to come to the end of ourselves to come to Christ. Think of what you were like the day before you were saved. 
I don't care to dwell on that. I seldom talk about it. I wasn't a nice person. I don't like what I was. I don't like what I had become. I can't even think about some of the values that I held, how I thought about relationships, how I thought about life in general. But I came to the end of myself one day uh, in the jungles of Kauai, and I sat down literally on a rock in the middle of the jungle on the Nepali coastline, and I said, God, I, I give up. I, I have so destroyed my life, I literally have nowhere to go. But there was a bunch of hippies living in tree houses, and that was my only goal at the time. And the Lord literally sent a skyhook from heaven to take me out of there, and obviously my life has never been the same. But I was a broken individual. And it would have been nice if that was all the breaking that had to be done. But I found out that was just the beginning. It was just a crack in the breaking that God had to do. The crushing that he brings into our life. And I wish I could tell you it's a pleasant experience. But it is not. You see, there are just a few things that are improved by being broken. Saints and sinners are two of them. We must be broken if we're going to be usable. The Bible is just full of the benefits of brokenness. Our text is only one of them. Brokenness brings you closer to God. Read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and you'll know that to be true. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. So if you want to draw near to God, he'll be repulsed by pride. He'll be attracted. In fact, the Bible says God is impressed by brokenness. And so here is a God who sees the deepest depths of the ocean, the furthest reaches of the universe, and created them them all by his hand. And yet the one thing he says he looks upon in mankind is a crushed human spirit. He looks upon that person that is attractive to him. So brokenness not only brings you close to God, it begins to make you useful to God. You see, a person who's not broken is a danger to himself and to God's people because that person is self-satisfied. He's confident. He's certain of his ways, unwilling to admit his dependence or her dependence upon God. And you must be broken if you're going to be useful. God resists the proud, but draws near to the humble. Down south, they say the humble, but I'm going to use the H. God draws near to the humble. And brokenness also will begin to make you sensitive to God. Where a person who's so wrapped up in his own thoughts and his own goals and plans... He really doesn't need to stop and listen to God. He already knows. He already has it figured out. He's already going down the train tracks at 100 miles an hour. But when you're broken, when you're crushed, you're more likely to spend time listening to the Lord. You see, in a a personal crisis, all those, those cliches we use as Christians all of a sudden come to life. Because when things are going well, we say, yeah, we're trusting God and the Lord's in control and all of that. But 
Get around a crisis when the walls start to crumble and people will really begin to trust God. When you really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and the bombs start coming in from the outside, the sovereignty of God takes on a whole new meaning way beyond theology. That God has to be in control. And, and furthermore, Romans 8, it's always there in our Bibles. All things work together for good for those who love God and trust him. But when we have the floor fall out and everything's caving in upon us, um, all things have to work together for good or it just doesn't make sense. Now, be careful how you use your inflection in that scripture because you hear people saying, well, all things work together for good, and it begins to become a question. It's not a question. It's an emphatic statement. All things are working together for good. It doesn't mean that all things are good. It means that God is capable of combining them, intertwining them, and weaving them in such a way that it will turn out good. And it may not be a pleasant path to get there, but he assures us that we will arrive at a place where we see he has been in control at every point along the way. What a great relief. Because I don't, I don't want to be in control. I had plenty of time, 27 years, to find out what I would do if I were in control of my life. And it was a train wreck. It was. And it, when I take over, when I, I begin to uh, demand my own way, I veer off course. And so God brings along crushing circumstances that cause me to look to him. That's why even the Apostle Paul said, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of our own lives. We had the, the sentence of death, Paul wrote, in ourselves. Why? He answers his own question, that we should not trust in ourselves. How could it be any clearer? Paul was constantly brought to the brink of desperation because God didn't want him to trust in himself. He echoes that point later by talking about the thorn in the flesh, given to him that he might not exalt himself because of the abundance of revelations given to him. So the closer you get to God, the more responsibility you are given by God, the more you'll be forced to depend on God. That's the cycle of truth he wants to be active in your life. It's not that the more you know about God, the more you can say, okay, God, I think I've got it now. Uh, the training wheels can come off my spiritual life. I'll, I'll be all right. That's not exactly not the way it works. True, to whom much is given, much is required. But the ultimate requirement for every believer, every priest, every royal son and daughter of God is to fully and totally remain a child of God, to cling to his hand, not to say, I can cross the street alone because there's a, a bus coming with your name on it and God will keep, keep you out of the way. Well, he was humbled, Paul was, by that thorn in his flesh, but there are many examples in the Bible of men and women who experienced great times of deep despair while serving God faithfully. The greatest benefit, however, of being broken is probably this. It makes us more like Jesus. Can you think of a better example of brokenness than the very Son of God on the cross, in the garden, betrayed, beaten, bloodied, brutally treated at the hand of the men he created? 
He was broken. And so when we are broken, we are just exhibiting a manifest token of his suffering. And this brings us to the question of the, the tools that God uses to break us. You know, one of the quickest ways to get the attention of a human is go through the sense gates, how we feel. Because we have a desperate need for equilibrium, a need to feel good. And when something's out of whack, it just throws your whole system into chaos. Let's take a cavity, for example. Now, 99.9% of your body is functioning perfectly. But there's a cavity in the back of your mouth. It, it, can, it can ruin your whole week. And then you find out, oh, no, it's a root canal. <laughs> and your dentist re- reassures you, this won't hurt. <laughs> Whenever they say that, you are in deep trouble. Just go for the spinal and just be knocked out right at, at that point right there is my advice. But we have a need to feel good. And so God often goes to the use of a tool called infirmities, sicknesses, illness, to make us realize something's wrong. Because we also have this human desire to have it all together, to think we have it made. And God is trying to put a signpost in front of you to say, you don't. You desperately need me in ways you can hardly imagine. And he wants us to be brought to that realization constantly. Um, so that's the case we have here in Psalm 51 where God uses a, a different tool, the tool of human failure, David's failure in particular, but it's just one of many things in God's tool chest to carve and chisel and even crush his people. Not that we might be destroyed, but that we might be put back together according to his plan. So God also uses relationships. That's when our hearts are perhaps most vulnerable. Um, someone crushes us with rejection, betrayal, or abuse. And all of a sudden, our world falls apart. Now, in our teen years, that's very common. What do we call it when somebody is infatuated? We say they, we have a crush on them. Well, that's, that's not a bad term because that's what happens when it turns sour. They're crushed. And God uses these avenues into our life to speak truth, to inject reality, to draw us to him. And he does that here in the Psalms. And David says, we read through verse um, uh, 12, but I want to pick up in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. So David's failures were not the only means that God used to crush him. Um, And David is not alone in the hall of faith of men and women who were deeply distressed in their walk with God. Moses had a long period of a 40-year crushing in the wilderness, the backside of nowhere. Isaiah, however, had instantaneous undoing when he saw a revelation of God. So sometimes... God's crushings are elongated. Sometimes they're immediate. Isaiah saw the Lord, and he became undone. 
and recognize his own sinfulness. Other times, the crushings are quite apart from your own behavior. Job and Jeremiah were perfectly obeying the Lord, and yet they were deeply disturbed by what God allowed into their lives. Jeremiah, a faithful prophet. Job, a man of God praying for his family, stripped of everything, including his health. And yet, we see that God's hand was clearly on the situation in both cases. So, when you see that God seems not only to allow, but demand that his best friends be broken, as these two went through, you might say, well, maybe I don't want to be so close to God, because bad things happen around there. Just the opposite is true. If we were wise, we would run from brokenness. We would run to it. Because we'd recognize that's where God's work gets done. Let's define some of our contrasting terms. Um, and I'll give you two pairs of three words to, to really wrap our mind around how dramatically different the values of this system on our world are compared to heaven's economy. The three first words are contrite, humble, and broken, and contrast them with proud, haughty, and hard-hearted. And you can find untold self-help books to teach you how to be the second three, but it's the Bible that tells us how to become broken, contrite, and humble. But when you see that these things are painful and difficult and not pleasant to go through, um, you might ask yourself, is God someone I really want to get close to, or is he operating on a wholly different value system than I am accustomed to? I choose the latter. I believe God is, is functioning far above our mundane human need system. I think God is interested in your eternal character, And it leads us to the question, what happens when you refuse to be broken? What if you stiffen your neck? What if you say, that's just too painful? It's just too personally expensive for me to give it up. I don't want to go through that. Well, there are examples, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, and others, men, talented men, who said no to God, Pharaoh was destroyed by it. Nebuchadnezzar went through great distress and finally got the message. But nonetheless, why go to that extreme? Well, the, um, the title of this teaching, as I said, is the, the Beauty of Brokenness. But I have to tell you that there could be an alternative title. Have you noticed that in CDs lately, where you get a movie on CD and you watch it, and then the menu comes up and it says, alternative ending. Well, I don't like that, because um, you watch a movie and the hero lives, and the alternative ending, the hero dies. Well, they need to make up their mind. And that's their job. I don't want to sit there and have to decide how the movie ends. I want to have the emotional enjoyment. Well, the same is true of, of this teaching. You, um, you can have an alternative title for the teaching. And I'll even have an alternative text for you. Because if you don't submit and are attracted to the beauty of brokenness, then you might want to apply the title, When Christians Become Cannibals. And I'll, I'll lead you to your alternative text in Galatians chapter 5. 
in the New Testament, in verse 14, we read that for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. When Christians become cannibals. I was intrigued a few weeks ago in reading a, a story about some of the top historians who convened to try to decide in American history what was the greatest presidential mistake ever made. And I began scanning my memory banks and trying to come up with my answer, whether it was going to be Franklin Roosevelt uh, not taking action before Pearl Harbor or perhaps getting us into the War of 1812, that president, or was it Iran-Contra, or what was it? And I, t- I, t- I was surprised to read what they came up with. It was the presidency of James Buchanan. I wasn't even sure where he showed up, and I had to go look wh- where he was and what he had done or not done. And what they said is that he was a president that preceded Abraham Lincoln. And they charged him with the fault of not intervening and preventing the Civil War. And the conditions in our country were delivered to Abraham Lincoln in such a way that it was virtually inevitable by that point. But in the late 1850s, there were opportunities to reconcile. There were chances to avoid the great carnage of the Civil War. 618,000 Americans died in the war between the states as our country literally annihilated itself. Because remember, every casualty was an American. Can you imagine what it must have sounded like in heaven? to hear the prayers of the North and the South, both praying to the same God, both asking for the destruction of mutual enemies, both thinking they were absolutely righteous in doing so, and then going out and cannibalizing their own country. What a tragedy. And understanding that and keeping in context that at Pearl Harbor... 3,000 Americans died. 9-11, 2,800 plus. Tragic. But in context of 600,000, I see where the historians came up with that idea. And so it comes to a choice whether we're going to accept the crushing circumstances that God allows sovereignly to bring into our life without demanding an explanation without stomping our foot and asking why and with a submissive heart that simply says, yes, Lord. A faithful heart, a trusting heart that knows that the God to whom we give our allegiance has yet to make his first mistake. There has never been a crisis in heaven. Even when Satan freaked out. That would be the the worst thing that that could have ever happened. 
Even that, Jesus said, well, I beheld Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Well, that was it. He took one-third of the angelic host. Even that didn't cause God to push the panic button. So what is it in your life that you think has put God over the edge and taking him out of control? Get perspective. Sovereignty of God. We have to land squarely upon that principle. So, James Buchanan failed. I hope we don't. Let's illustrate by going to another dark chapter in David's life that is a really a prelude to Psalm 51. We know that one day King Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. The King James puts it delicately, but that's what he tried to do, skewer him on a spear. What did David do at that point? It's so instructive to understand because he had the opportunity at that point to jerk the spear out of the wall because David dodged and toss it back at King Saul. No doubt David was a talented spear chucker. But he didn't. And that is so revealing of his character. One author writes, you can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear. He turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. He discovered the three things that prevented him from ever getting hit. First and foremost, never learn the easily mastered art of returning the spear. Isn't that good? Two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. And three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, listen now, spears will never touch you even when they pierce your heart. We don't want to be a deep shade of bitter. We want to allow God to do his magnificent work, even though we don't completely understand. So brokenness can be beautiful in your life tonight. Here are some ways. You have to realize some changes that God intends to make in your life can only happen under these conditions. You know that diamonds can only be produced deep in the earth's crust by tremendous amounts of heat, pressure, and energy. There's no other way. But even after the diamond has been produced, it looks like a big clump of coal. And not many women would wear a raw diamond on their hand, no matter how large it was. Because even though it's gone through all those incredible pressures and exertion of energy upon it, it has to be brought to the surface of the earth and then cut and cleansed and refined. The same thing is true of you. The moment of salvation, a phenomenal thing happened to you. Do you really realize what happened at that moment? Now, we've seen it happen probably tens of thousands of times right here of those that come forward for first conversions and at various venues that we've had over the years. And it's silent and it's, it's quiet, 
And I've been in this room hundreds of times with thousands of people. And they, frankly, always kind of have a quizzical look on their face. Because from the pulpit, they've heard all these magnificent things that are happening to them. And their sins have been forgiven. They have a new life and a new nature and a new destiny. And, every, and all this has changed. And they go over here. They don't feel any different. Because it's all by faith. It's all generally invisible. And so there's kind of like a disappointment, like kind of almost a buyer's remorse deal, like what have I got and I don't feel any different, all these grand promises. But yet the Bible says that these things are a fact, that your name is written in heaven. Your, every sin you've ever committed has been cleansed, though they were as scarlet as white as snow. And that you've become a child of the God, you, of God. You've stepped out of darkness into his marvelous light. And these things are not disputable. You see? And so, that happened at the moment of salvation. That was the formation of the diamond. But from that, you have to be taken out of the, out of the mire, brought up to the air. And God begins to work on you and clean you and cleanse you and drill you and refine you and break you, that you might be the gem that he intends you to be. So why resist that process? Why harden your heart? Because you think, oh, I'm good enough now? I'm fine. You've done enough work on me. I, I, can, I want to be this way forever? No, God is not through with us yet. So... We need to cooperate and recognize the conditions he's creating are ideal for the work he intends. Don't try to flee. Don't try to artificially create different, different conditions, different situations. The crushing circumstances are part of his recipe. Don't try to change it. Then real and lasting change takes place under these conditions. You know, we can superficially change. We can act like we've changed. But God wants to change not your behavior, but your heart. You see, in the world, we begin working from the outside in. We try to alter our behavior by changing our habits. We do some pretty incredible things. I, uh, I knew a hypnotist one time. And he made a terrific living hypnotizing people at parties. And he'd have them acting like chickens. And he'd have them running along be, be, behaving like different kinds of barnyard animals. And to this day, I don't know if it was peer pressure, if he actually had altered their state of consciousness. It sure was funny, though. And people will go to hypnotists to change their smoking habits, to change their, uh, their eating habits. People will do all kinds of things on the outside. Uh, you can find all kinds of different uh, therapies to alter your be behavior. Your behavior will change when your heart changes. Your relations will change when God gets a hold of your value system. When God begins dictating your to-do list and your priorities, that's when your life's going to change. Because you can use all the willpower you want, and it will, it will fade. God wants to change your heart, and he wants truly for you to be able to say, I'm never going to be the same. And when he's working in your life, that's exactly what's going to happen. You are not going to be the same. Thirdly, um, this is where the real progress in your spiritual life is revealed. Because you've got to remember, people kind of have it backwards in the Christian system. They think the Christian life consists of coming to church. Well, let, let me say to you, this is the classroom. 
the rest of your life is the lab. And here's where you get the theory, out there is the practicum. And so people anticipate that, that they can just be around Christians all the time and be in this contained environment, and that's not God's plan at all. Now, he'll put you in the greenhouse for a time of, of pampering and for cultivating and, and for, for uh, accelerated growth, but then eventually puts you out in the cold, cruel world to bear fruit for him. That's what David says. Let's go back to Psalm 51. He says in uh, verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth praise. How difficult is it to praise God when the very life is being crushed out of you? You see, that's the time we should praise the Lord. That's the time we're most often likely not to praise the Lord. But David did that. He opened his mouth to get the system, his spiritual system, functioning in a healthy way to worship the Lord at the time he really needed it. Who does that remind you of? Job. When he received the worst of the bad news, he got down and worshipped God and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is how I came to the world. This is how I'll leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, if we can adopt that philosophy when the tough time comes. So here's my advice, and I, I'm certain it's biblical. Don't waste your sorrows. Don't run from breaking circumstances. If there was a word from the Lord to this church this week, it was very simply given this weekend. Be still and know that I am God. It's so difficult. I really think I'd rather do the wrong thing than do nothing. Just so I can be doing something. I just don't want to just be and allow my trust to be transmitted into my actions. Be still and know that I am God. That's God's advice for us. Let him work it out. Let him take care of it. It's the most difficult thing. Don't... Don't waste these times. Don't try to change them. Don't try to shorten them. Let God work through it. I assure you, he will let you know when the trial is over. How can you cooperate? How can you be a part of the solution and not part of the problem? Well, as you might know, the pastors here have called this church and our community to prayer. This is a time of prayer. We need to commit ourselves to the various aspects of prayer. Worship, confession, inter- intercessory prayer, petitionary prayer. All too often, our prayer life consists of only one of those. Petition, asking God. But a healthy, well-rounded prayer life consists of all of them. Of worship, just reminding ourselves of who God is. Not that he has forgotten, but that we, we have forgotten. So we begin our, our prayer time by just exploring the nature of God, reminding ourselves why we're praying to him, because he does answer prayer, because he's capable, because he is sovereign and omnipotent. So that's just part of our prayer life, worship. And then confession. We need to be cleansed before we enter in 
to a time of fellowship. And so we, we, we confess our sins, we humble ourselves before the throne, and He will lift us up. And confession is a crucial part of prayer. And then intervention. That's selfless prayer. That's praying on behalf of others. And we must ask what ratio of our prayers are given over to objective prayers that don't concern us, that if they're answered won't affect us, except that we are pouring our heart out on behalf of others. That's intercessory prayer. And then there is supplication, and that's petitionary prayer, asking God. And we're very familiar with that kind of prayer, so I won't belabor it. But there's also adoration at the end. Begin to thank God in faith. He's going to answer these prayers according to his divine wisdom. So it's just not a matter of putting in your list like you're at a sushi restaurant or something to God and then see ya. No, prayer should be an experience, a well-rounded spectrum of relating to God. And so that's one way that you can cooperate during times of crushing circumstances. And then what about fasting? What about fasting? Ooh, it sounds so medieval. The church has fallen out of favor with fasting in large part, but God hasn't. Jesus anticipated that his followers would fast because in Matthew he said what? Not if you fast, but when you fast. And he gave very clear directives, you know that. So what is God's chosen fast? Is fasting effective in times of crisis? The Bible indicates that it is. Um, Isaiah 58, 6 says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of, of, of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, and then to let the light shine forth? Fasting is a powerful spiritual tool, often unused in our arsenal. Fasting has many different facets. Uh, men and women of God have fasted throughout the years, throughout the the centuries, for a wide variety of purposes. And the Bible tells us there is is fasting unto God. There is fasting for personal separation from sin. Uh, There is fasting to free the captives. Fasting for personal deliverance. There is fasting to buffet the body. There is fasting to plead with God to remove his hand of judgment. Many good and excellent reasons to fast. Many different kinds of fasting. Partial fast, absolute fasts ways where we can enter into spiritual disciplines that will help engage us more effectively in the warfare in the heavenlies. These are serious times we live in in the the church. There are great pressures being brought about worldwide upon the, the church of Jesus Christ. People suffering greatly for their faith. We ought to be sharing in their sorrows, and fasting is one way to deprive ourselves and do just that. And then, after fasting, feeding yourself. You must be healthy in a crisis. You must be consuming the Word of God in huge volumes. You have to be cleansing yourself daily. There's a lot of poison circulating in the world. And if you're defiled by it, you'll begin turning that shade of bitter. And so, you must absolutely dedicate yourself to a thorough menu of the Word of God like never before. Memorization is one fabulous way to Put the seed of God's word deep within your heart and to to continually give yourself completely to the things of God's word. Well, let's look at the life of David in this context. 
in the last few minutes we have together. There were three kings, the first three kings of Israel are very demonstrative of three different kinds of Christians. You had Saul, you had David, and you had Absalom. Although Absalom was a self-imposed king, nonetheless, Saul represented a man anointed by God. David, a king appointed by God after he was anointed. And Absalom, a counterfeit king who forced his way to the throne. Saul represents a man of lost opportunity, who at the end of his days said, I have played the fool. The many windows of opportunity that God gave to him, Saul squandered. He forfeited the right of intimacy with God, of being a great leader of the nation of Israel. He turned into a man, a crazy king. He was the exact instrument that David needed. Just the precise thing that God ordered for the life of David. A mad king that God would use to test him. Just to see how would David respond when the spears started flying. What would David do when he was chased from every cave and, and rat hole in Israel? How would he react when he and Joab came upon a sleeping Saul in that cave one day, would he pull out his sword and do to Saul what Saul wanted to do to him? It frustrated Joab greatly when David said, I would rather die than become like him. And he walked away. And in that moment, in that moment, David did what God so wanted him to do. He trusted He could have so easily killed Saul in that moment. But he elected to say, no, I'm walking away. Joab's like, what are you doing? And he couldn't understand. People will not understand when we don't take revenge. How can we take revenge when Jesus said, bless those that curse you? We have no excuse. We know the truth. We know the clear commands of Scripture. We are not to be like the world. Even when we have every excuse in the world, and David certainly did. But I'm not done. There's a third king, and that's Absalom, David's very son. And it broke his heart to a degree it's hard to imagine when Absalom betrayed and rebelled and usurped the throne from King David. David wasn't perfect. But nonetheless, Absalom's rebellion was a terrible blow to his father. And he voluntarily evacuated Jerusalem, and the rest is history. But the syndrome of Absalom is very dangerous indeed because he wasn't content to wait for the purposes of God to play out. He took them into his own hands, and it led to his own destruction. So the question becomes, what kind of Christian do we want to be? Do we want to be like a Saul? Of course not. The obvious answer is to land squarely on the life of King David, where he fully and thoroughly trusted in the commands and demands of God and said no to the human impulse for revenge and retribution 
and said yes to patience, to sovereignty, and to mercy. So in conclusion here tonight, let's, con- let's look at the end of Psalm 51. Verse 17, the bottom part, A broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure in Zion. So what is it that is God's pleasure? What pleases God in our life? Now, we all know very well what pleases us. You know, we all have such a unique value system when it comes to what we consider to be fun because people have all these different kinds of unique tastes. Some people think it's fun to go to tractor pulls. Some people think it's fun, and one of the huge things in the country today is NASCAR racing. People think it's just the best thing to go watch these guys go 300 miles an hour around and around and around this oval. And I, for the life of me, I'm sorry, I don't get it. If it was a straight race, and it was, I, I just, I, I don't track with it. It's amazing to watch them drafting and that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, is there anything else we're going to be doing for the next three hours? <laughs> I know there are NASCAR fans. I'm just telling you, I have different things that I like. I would like to go to Wimbledon. But some people think, tennis, are you crazy? The ball going back and forth. So we all have <laughs> our unique things that we think are terrific. And you, you are very familiar with your pleasure zones, aren't you? Because you pursue them. You're after them. You, we, we, to some degree, serve them. We take our discretionary time, our discretionary income, and we spend them in our pleasure zone, things that make us happy, things we, things we, we want to do on the weekends. You can tell a lot about a person by their Saturday mornings. And that's as far as I'm going. But there's a lot you can know about a person right there. Nonetheless, as familiar as you are about your pleasure zone, what is it that brings God pleasure? We ought to be more familiar with that. Because the Bible says that God is pleased by our broken sacrifices. Now, that kind of sounds mean because he almost painful. But I have to believe that God, at the end of the day, knows what's best for you and I. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? Do you live like you believe that? Do you make your decisions like you believe that? You see, uh, intellectual assent is not faithful obedience. We have to make the connect. The largest amputation in the Christian life is between that door and your car. Many great sermons have been left between here and there. Many things you believed in here became irrelevant when life intruded. We need not to do that, but to give God pleasure. And God is pleased. God is even impressed when we are willing to come to him, to humble ourselves before him. And the Bible says that God is first, not, listen now, not the author of confusion, but he is the author of all human promotion. In other words, God installs and, and takes away kings according to his good pleasure. So that is something we can absolutely bank upon. Let me close by 
reading to you. Just listen quietly while I read these verses to you. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and of he who trembles at my word. Lord, tonight we come to you and we ask forgiveness, God, for any pride or a spirit that would not bring you pleasure. God, help us to submit to circumstances that are beyond our control and beyond our understanding. Help us to know, Lord, that you are a good God, that you have our best interests in mind. We as a body and individually, submit ourselves now to your goodwill. In Jesus' name, amen.